Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our third series, The Making of a Pioneer, Toast is collaborating with the National Portrait Gallery here in central London to explore the lives of six pioneering women, past and present. All have a portrait hanging in the gallery and we will be joined by authors, artists and in some cases the subjects themselves to discuss what it is that makes a pioneer and where this pioneering spirit was born. Gillian Waring's portrait of Shami Chakrabarti shows its sitter holding a wax mask of her own face. The artist inspired, she said, by Chakrabarti's comment that her public persona is mask-like, often interpreted as grim, worthy and strident. A barrister and former director of the civil rights group Liberty, she's now a Labour Party politician and a member of the House of Lords. In her frequent appearances on the BBC's Question Time and the Today programme, among others, she's been consistently passionate and committed in her defence of civil liberties, particularly in areas of anti-terrorism measures and immigration. More recently, she's been at the heart of the complex debate surrounding the UK's departure from Europe. I meet Chakrabarti in a park close to the House of Lords, where even on a dreary autumn morning, demonstrators have gathered at the gates with placards to bawl at MPs as they arrive and depart. We're uh, just in the shadow of the House of Parliament, in the gardens just onto the edge of the Thames. It's a very busy weekday morning, uh, as you might hear the helicopters and the sirens. Could we start by talking about your portrait in the National Portrait Gallery, the Gillian Waring one? Because you've actually got two. There's a photograph, which may be the Neil Drabble, and then the Gillian Waring is a photograph that also includes this slightly macabre head that I hold. I hold my head in a slightly disturbing way. Like a pendulum almost, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Gillian's done a lot of work around people's images and self-images and at the time she was thinking a lot about masks but she made a mask a wax mask of me in the way that they do it for Madame Two Swords or whatever um, so you have to, as in you I had to sit still well, and have my head measured and all sorts of weird stuff and then she made this mask and then she f- took the photograph of me holding my own mask if yes, you like yeah. how did you feel when you were approached by her is that how it came no, the way that it worked was that the National Portrait Gallery often, I think, when they're commissioning portraits, select people who they're going to have depicted in the gallery. And then you get invited for a cup of tea with Sandy Nairn, who was then the director of the MPG. And you go to a sort of sweet headmaster's study. And you know you're not in trouble, but you're still nervous because it's a headmaster's study. And then they start asking you about how you'd like to be depicted so I suddenly said I I want it to be a woman artist and the curators looked very excited and um, brought out a a list of wonderful women artists who didn't yet have portraits um, in the collection and she was top of the list and that was that. It must be a peculiar moment no matter how accustomed you are to being in the public eye to be put forward as somebody to have their portrait hang in the National Portrait Gallery and to sit for that and know that you are there in perpetuity? To be honest, what I was more conscious of was was the process of meeting Gillian and talking to her because, you know, I'm a lawyer, not an artist, but I'm quite interested in people and it's quite fascinating to 
to spend a lot of time with someone from a very, very different discipline and walk of life. You know, I have a couple of friends who are artists, but you no, know, I spend most of my time with you know, lawyers, journalists, politicians. So that was fascinating, and that was what was on my mind. And, and the process took probably in total a couple of years from the first meeting with, um, with um, shy Gillian Waring, you know, in that sort of artistic sort of way. Very, very cool, very brilliant, fairly shy. And it was just really lovely to get to know her a bit and to see her at work. In that story, let's be honest, Gillian Waring is the pioneering woman. To be an artist that is chosen for a commission for the National Portrait Gallery is, is, a, is a really serious honour and achievement. So we're meeting you in early October um, 2019, and we're just outside the House of Parliament. We have under a month until we are meant to leave the European Union. This has thrown you into an even more public position, I suppose, the last three years. How have you felt that you have had to change as a person to deal with all these new challenges? Because you've joined the Lords in that time as well, haven't you? Your role's changed significantly. My role has changed significantly. I think that there's a, a thread that still runs through my working life, which is, you know, a, a belief in human rights and the rule of law. You know, I trained at the bar, I became a government lawyer, anonymous, you know, neutral advisor to governments of both persuasions. Then I took on a very public role at, at Liberty, the National Council for Civil Liberties, but I never thought I would get involved in party politics. I didn't feel temperamentally suited to it, and um, the last three years have been a vindication of that uh, judgment. <laughs> However, I think that sometimes you have to respond to the, the circumstances in which you find yourself. And I think it was the very divisive referendum campaign in particular that made me think it was almost a duty to pick a side and get involved. I am not an elected politician, so I'm still primarily an, an advisor and an advocate, and that suits me better, I think, than, than what my elected colleagues have to contend with. But I feel that in some ways, the skills and experience that I've acquired in earlier roles are, are helpful at this incredibly perilous moment for our country and the wider world. It must be a very different experience for you to go into the Lords or to have moved into the Lords because it's a very different setting to Liberty. I suppose you've had echoes of that sort of institution in your legal career but it's, it's very male, it's very white, it's very public school, I imagine, still. How has that been, to meet those barriers? The House of Lords is a very strange place, and whilst it's capable of doing very good work at its best, you know, its worst face is not the most attractive. On occasion, you do see some very entitled behaviour, but this is just one part of my life. It's a place to do the work that needs to be done at this moment. And so I try very hard not to take anything negative to heart. So you see entitlement on occasion. At other times, you get to listen to some very brilliant people who've had wonderful careers in the law or in medicine or in science give very eloquent expert speeches it's a very it's a very mixed bag i think a friend of mine said it must be like watching one of those nature programs where nothing happens in the serengeti for for hours and then suddenly you know the lion pounces on the gazelle it can be a bit like that sometimes people are not always succinct in their contributions my lords 
everything has been said in the last few hours, but not yet by me. <laughs> but for the moment, at least, we have to work with the system that we have. The pitch of debate has really gathered both pace and perhaps shrillness over the last few months in particular. And I'm just wondering, with your background, which is very much about considered debate and minutiae of law, how you've had to alter your presentation of, of your opinions? We are in a very dangerous moment of anti-politics, nasty politics, dog whistle politics, perhaps it's not even dog whistles but foghorns now. We have people suggesting that Parliament is illegitimate, that the courts are illegitimate, that people on one or other side of the referendum argument have a monopoly of entitlement and legitimacy. It's a really dangerous moment and the challenge for somebody like me is to try not to rise to the worst provocations but at the same time not be so dignified and so restrained that you don't cut through and get your own message across. That is the tightrope people like me are trying to walk at this moment. You mentioned earlier that your career was originally quite anonymous. You, you were working in law and government. Um, the moment that you stepped into the public eye when you became the head of Liberty, how much recalibration did that require? I think that becoming director of Liberty was, in a sense, the biggest step change of my professional life. In some respects, even bigger than the more recent one, and not least because I was in my early 30s. And so I was, you know, younger and, and um, less experienced and less thick-skinned, I suppose. I had to learn the most new skills that I've ever had to do in a hurry. Management, fundraising, speaking to the media. But I think it's good to learn new things. It's good to get out of your comfort zone. And if you get that opportunity in life, it's a wonderful thing. And I had a lot of support. And that's sort of how I got through it, I think. But when you go on something like Question Time, which you've done a, a lot, no matter that support, you're out there on your own, suddenly in front of, of an audience and television cameras. And, and you've, you've got to represent the views of a great many people and the hope of a great many people. How does that moment feel? In the end, that you have to be true to your values. All the briefing and all the reading and all the scripts and all the preparation is helpful but the most important thing is to speak to your values that's how you get through the nerves that's how you get through the noise but yes of course you know an iconic program like that one with the legendary theme music that perhaps you heard in your own family living room as a child you know the first time that you sit there on the set and they play that music your heart is in your mouth where are those values rooted? Because you, you grew up in London and Harrow, didn't you? You went to state school, is that I did, correct? I did, yeah. um, I did. I suppose my values come from a combination of family and education and community and country, actually. You know, my parents came to England from India as Commonwealth citizens. They very much believed in Britain as a place with lots of challenges and problems, but nonetheless with a belief in rights and freedoms and the rule of law. So they gave me a respect for, for those things very, very early on. And then you, you take what your parents give you and you, you go on in life, particularly education makes a huge, huge difference. You know, I, I went to state school, but I also went to university with no tuition fees, 
and a full maintenance grant. I was paid by the state to study and money for food and rent and law books. So imagine my embarrassment now at the age of 50 that young people of subsequent generations don't have the opportunities that I have. That's a terrible generational injustice. So you first appeared on Question Time in your early 30s. Whether or not you felt like a pioneering woman doing that, you very much were to a lot of people across the country. You represented something very new and something that embodied their views, but you did it with articulacy and passion and fire, I guess. Did you feel the weight of that at the time? Do you feel it now? Does it make you second guess what you're going to say or or to hold back on certain issues? I have always felt that a microphone is a responsibility. You know, it's a privilege, but it's a responsibility. And, you know, these are difficult times now. At that time, we had the war on terror, we had the Iraq war, we had mass demonstrations, we had, you know, different dividing issues, but in its own way, that was a febrile time too. And there's a responsibility to be clear, to be at times uncompromising about core values, but also to put them across in an accessible way that isn't too ranty. One of my challenges always, but I think particularly when I was younger, was that I um, feel the rage inside and I'm worried that I might be expressing it and then sometimes you have to listen back and realize that actually you weren't you weren't shouting you were just shouting inside you know it's hard to talk dispassionately about things like torture about things like abuses of human rights that's the challenge to talk about really difficult things to talk about profound injustice but try to be clear and try not to rant and some people may think I achieved that and others might disagree. I'm probably a bit of a Marmite figure, but so be it, you know. Have people routinely done the sort of patting you on the head in a sort of there, there, dear kind of way? Oh, I mean, welcome to the patriarchy. Have you dined with us before? My name is Shami, I'll be your server this evening. Let me tell you about our specials. Of course I know what it's like to be patronised and dismissed, etc, etc has always happened, still happens on occasion, happens in TV studios, happens in Parliament, happens wherever, and, you know, you pick your battles. If I literally demonstrated, if you like, every time a radio interviewer or fellow politician was dismissive, patronising, sexist, frankly, I'd be protesting my own rights the whole time and not those of other people. So there's a, there's a, there's a balance to be struck, but yes, it's, it's ever-present in my life. The expression of anger when you are a woman in the public sphere and particularly in the political sphere is sometimes greeted with, with a degree of uh, patronisation or dismissal. It's very different to when, a, say, a male MP might be angry. How do you deal with that situation? So just to be clear, gender injustice is perhaps the biggest injustice on the planet in terms of the numbers of people affected by it because it's actually a hundred percent of people who are affected by it Um, it's not just women that that suffer because of sexism on the planet I would argue that men and boys suffer just as much so so, you know so women are getting killed in their homes and men getting killed on the street but it's all coming from this this bizarre apartheid um, that we've had on the planet forever and it manifests in all sorts of ways every day 
in politics, there is no doubt that as in every other walk of life, there are double standards. So a man is passionate in his delivery and a woman is shrill. So what do we do about that? We try to change our judgments and not to judge others so harshly, whether they're our friends or our opponents. But then also I think as, as women advocates for causes, we try to adjust our own advocacy in order to be heard in that noise. It's not easy, it's not perfect, there's no magic solution, but we do the best we can. Who are the women who went before you that you see as, as pioneers that cleared the way for you? There are loads of women that I've looked up to my whole life. Some of them famous, like Lady Hale, Brenda Hale, extraordinary lawyer and judge. She's our Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a very kind woman as well. So she's extraordinary. But um, my own mother was a great inspiration lacked the opportunities that I had had but so so encouraging and again a very kind person you know that's a word that doesn't get talked about enough just a little bit of kindness would go a long way including in politics and public life I had a wonderful mentor and boss when I was a home office lawyer called Juliet Weldon lots of people men and women actually along the way right from when you were growing up have you felt as if you were pushing forward, that you were pioneering, that you were going into new spaces? I never thought of myself as a pioneer, but I did think of myself as someone who was impatient with injustice and wanted wanted not just to be upset about things or moan about things, but try to achieve positive change. I think that's true. I think that was the reason why I wanted to study law. I always saw the law as a potential agent for positive change. So that's what took me into law, that's what took me into government service, that's what took me to liberty and, and that's what's brought me to, to Parliament now and in particular to be Shadow Attorney General. There must have been moments throughout when, which have been difficult or disappointing and some of them have been public. How do you get through those hard moments and are they things that spur you on to do better or do you want to hide away in those moments? I have learnt to celebrate every positive moment and to bottle those positive moments so that you can just sort of open the bottle a little bit and remind yourself of that when things are not so good. I've lost lots of arguments and lots of cases and lots of campaigns as well as had some really positive moments. I've always believed though that I'm not so special. If I have values, the chances are there are people who share those values. And sometimes you can feel a bit isolated and and feel alone, but if you just sort of lift your head and listen and get in touch with your environment, you will find that there are other people who agree as well. And if you can just find a way to make that connection, to articulate that campaign, that injustice, those values, you will find that people do rally. But, you know, rights and freedoms have to be protected in the courtroom, but that's not enough rights and freedoms in our country have to be protected and fostered in the boardroom, the classroom, the police station, the parliament chamber, if they are to survive. Do you still feel hope for our country, even though things do look, certainly from one perspective, as if they are in complete disarray? I always have hope. I am, in the end, I am an optimist. Um, I'm a realist, but I am an optimist. This is a very, very difficult moment. There are forces being unleashed that we have not 
seen in, in this stable democracy for a very, very long time. But I do still believe in our resilience as a democracy and I believe in people's decency. So it's a very febrile moment and there are people irresponsibly whipping up some innocent and vulnerable people's uh, resentments that go right back at least to the crash and the feeling that the wealthy people responsible for the financial crisis got away with it and other people got forgotten and left behind and they've been neglected too long and I really, really sympathise with all of that but now that is being whipped up in, in a really dangerous way by people who are not anti-establishment. They are the establishment. They are incredibly wealthy people. They are incredibly powerful people who've had privilege all their lives and they're playing from a playbook that is really unattractive but I still believe in the common decency of most people and in the resilience of our institutions. Toast podcasts are presented by me, Laura Barton, produced by Jeff Bird and conceived by Emily Mears. All the portraits discussed in this series are part of the National Portrait Gallery's permanent collection. The gallery, founded in 1856, is situated in St Martin's Place. Tucked behind Trafalgar Square, it faces out towards Covent Garden. Toast is a British lifestyle and clothing brand that aspires to a slower, more thoughtful way of life. To listen to more episodes from this series, and earlier series, head to Toast Magazine, which can be found via the Toast website, www.toa.st. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe.